Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an update into the investigation of the limo crash in Skahari several years ago that killed 20 people. Then for our peace bucket, we talk to Extinction Rebellion, read the upcoming World Climate Summit in Egypt. Later on, we hear from the director of The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, which will be screened at the sanctuary on Thursday, November 3rd. After that, we hear from Angela Kaufman about her ongoing struggles at Lakeview Mobile Home Park in Saratoga. And we end with a recap experience of Jack McGuire's performance piece, The Small Island Project. But first, headlines. The Schenectady Police Department regularly exceeds its annual overtime budget, and the practice is expected to continue next year, despite efforts by city council to cut overtime spending. City police ask for $1.8 million in overtime next year, while the final budget slightly trims that number, the $23.2 million in police spending in the budget is the highest ever. The state's absentee balloting rules for this year's general election and in future elections was upheld in two legal cases argued before a panel of judges on the appellate division of the state Supreme Court on Tuesday. One of the cases upholds the ability of Board of Elections to start counting ballots when ballots, absentee ballots, when they receive them, rather than waiting until Election Day. The second case allows voters to obtain an absentee ballot if they fear contracting an illness, such as COVID, by showing up at polling places. The Times Union reports that Alazar Williams has won a court ruling allowing him to proceed with his excessive force lawsuit against the now-retired Albany police detective who shot him during a foot chase in 2018, leaving Williams paralyzed from the chest down. A key point in dispute is whether Williams threatened the officer with a knife when the officer confronted him while looking for a suspect in a different matter. Two of the largest United States pharmacy chains, CVS Health and Walgreens Company, announced agreements in principle Wednesday to pay about $5 billion each to settle lawsuits nationwide over the toll of opioids. And a lawyer said Walmart is in discussion for a deal. The pharmacies filled prescriptions they should have flagged as inappropriate. Cohoe's Common Council member Bill Smith has called for fellow councilman Randy Konioka to resign after Konioka asked Smith and several other officers to stop communicating with him. Konioka indicated that he was fed up with Smith's behavior on the council. That's it for headlines. Last Friday at 8 p.m., the New York State Inspector General released the long-awaited report into the role of state agencies in the limousine crash that killed 20 people several years ago in Schoharie County. In Schoharie County, Mark interviews Mark Rulison of the Times Union about this report. 
We're talking today with Larry Rollison, who is a reporter for the Times Union. Among other things, Larry has been um, providing ongoing coverage of the unfortunate uh, death of 20,000 individuals with the uh, limousine uh, crash in uh, Schoharie County a number of years ago. And last Friday, at, uh, I believe at eight o'clock at night, the uh, Inspector General uh, released uh, its study of what was going on with respect to state oversight uh, of the limousine. So, um, Larry, what, what was in the uh, IG report that you found interesting? Uh, thanks, Mark. Uh, you know, the amount of um, sort of confessional in the report was uh, uh, satisfying to see that, you know, the, the IG, the Inspector General um, placed blame um, and on the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles and the Department of uh, Transportation and said that they had missed many opportunities over the years uh, with Prestige Limousine to stop that uh, the 34 foot excursion from being on the road. And um, so they, they basically painted a picture of uh, sort of regret that the uh, state had um, sort of dropped the ball on Prestige uh, leading up to the the tragic crash that killed 20 people on um, October 6th, uh, 2018. Uh, it's really the first time anyone within the state uh, government has um, sort of uh, pointed blame at another agency, uh, which we, we, you know, our reporting at the Times Union found a lot of blame to go around at the DOT and DMV. Well, it seemed like the federal, uh, I believe, Department of Transportation had released sort of a similar uh, report. And, and one of the things reading from your article, you sort of get the impression that the uh, various state agencies are a little bit more concerned about the well-being of the uh, pristine limousine company keeping their uh, vehicle on the road than they were about public safety. Yeah, you know, I think this is a um, sort of a, a long-standing uh, sort of unspoken policy at DOT, which I heard from day one uh, uh, in my reporting was that DOT didn't want to take commercial vehicles off the road unnecessarily because they, did, they didn't want to prevent commerce from happening. But that didn't really apply to limousines, especially stretch limousines, which are, you know, carry around kids typically, not, you know, expensive cargo and and uh, Walmart and Amazon products, um, you know. Th but what happened here is the uh, the the the, uh, the people at DOT and state police that that do those inspections of commercial vehicles, you know, that are going down the road every day, bringing goods and services and you know uh, gases and chemicals. Um, they started taking over. Uh, uh, some of the limo, they would start pulling over limousines and things like that. And in this case, they should have never uh, been involved with limousines. They, you know, they're more more used to commercial vehicles. So, it, looking back, I think that um, this was sort of a uh, misapplied uh, enforcement that sort of uh, uh, didn't wasn't strong enough considering what was at stake with you know. Uh, young kids uh, taking limousines so they don't, you know, drink and drive, things like that. Um, you know, they, they sort of went soft on uh, Prestige. Now, uh, some people say it's because uh, a Prestige owner was a uh, FBI informant. 
Um, but I think it was a mixture. It could have been that, but it, I also think that the, a lot of the DOT was, you know, don't, um, don't do any harm to these um, commercial vehicle, uh, these uh, commercial companies, you know, that have huge fleets. Um, don't, you know, shut them down overnight just because of like one infraction. But in this case, it, it was tragic. Now, I understand a lot of these stretch limousines are sort of, you know, modified vehicles weren't originally built that way. And there has been, you know, I guess some real questions about the overall safety of these type of stretch uh, limousines. Did the, the, the IG report get into, okay, how do we fix this problem moving forward? Now, the, you know, the, in terms of the uh, limousine uh, being uh, modified, you know, basically no no car companies have made limousines since, I don't know, maybe the 60s or 70s. And so in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, especially, there's this uh, sort of um, uh, overnight uh, 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 businesses that would uh, uh, would prop up pop up everywhere especially in like the ozarks for some reason and uh, cut uh, uh cars in half and create stretch limousines the the report didn't really detail that they the report talks more about what dot and dmv could do to communicate better the you know the feds regulate um in a way they regulate stretch limousines whether they're safe or not and of uh, all uh stretch limousines that are you know cutting you know cut in half from regular car stretch are supposed to get these federal tags uh, from the federal uh, 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 government. And um, in this case, this limousine didn't have one of those federal tags. So uh, we don't really know if, if it was designed safely uh, or not, but um, it definitely uh, broke almost every law imaginable uh, in New York State. Now, one of the things with this particular limousine, apparently it had been gotten some work done at a local auto repair place who basically falsified uh, what they were doing uh, in order to meet like company, you know, quotas, and apparently that included the work. Did the IG report, you know, discuss about the oversight of some of these, uh, you know, auto repair companies, make sure they're actually doing the work they're supposed to say they're doing? Yeah, I did mention it said, you know, that, you know, this, this, the, the, uh, the vehicle should have never been, um, in, well, it was inspect. It went to Mavis Discount Tire on Broadway in, in Saratoga Springs for a lot of its maintenance work, all of it really. Uh, when the family bought it in 2016, um, they you know almost uh, immediately started uh, bringing it to Mavis for repairs. Now, Mavis doesn't even in that particular Mavis doesn't even have a lift that can pick up a uh, stretch limousine. So you can look underneath and, and look at stuff. The uh, Mavis did a, an inspection and put an inspection sticker on the limousine, but it was an inspection sticker for a regular car like you and I own, not for limousines. Special limousines aren't allowed to be inspected at a DMV, uh, uh, you know, repair shops. They they have to actually go to a DOT garage and get inspected every six months. So the inspection definitely was. Um, done illegally the work was definitely there was um invoices swapped for work that wasn't done but in my own uh experience when i've looked at the evidence of uh, none of the stuff that was uh uh done or not done uh with the invoices or not invoiced uh really uh impacted the uh the braking system it just was never fixed at all um some of the work 
that they said they were doing was um, some types of brake work, but uh, he, he, you know, uh, the owner never actually ordered um, a complete repair of the brakes anyway. So, um, you know, I, I don't know how uh, uh, culpable Mavis was on in terms of the maintenance, but it, in, the, in terms of the inspection, it, it should have never inspected that uh, the excursion. Uh, so we have about 90 uh, seconds left. Now, the manager of uh, Prestige Limousine um, is, is now going to go to trial, I believe, uh, early spring of next year. It, you know, will this report factor at all uh, into that uh, criminal trial for those 20 people who were killed? I'm sure the defense, uh, um, B. Kinlan and Joe Tagapino, the, uh, the Lord attorneys for Hussein, I'm sure they'll use the IG report as fodder for uh, they could use it in their uh, own probably benefit saying, you know, they, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, perhaps maybe the IG could use it too, I think on both sides, whether or not they will, I'm not sure, um, uh, you know, Susan Mallory, the D district attorney uh, hasn't uh, focused too much um, on that, uh, the DOT and DMV in the past, but I, I, I would bet that, you uh, uh, Hussein's attorneys might say, well, you know, the DOT, DMV dropped the ball here. Why, what, you know, my client didn't, didn't realize he's, you know, breaking the law. Okay. Well, uh, thank you much, uh, Larry Rollison. I know you'll be continuing to follow in this uh, story for, for the Time Union. And this has been uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So this increasingly seems a case where we have a sleazy limo operator a crooked auto repair shop and a bunch of state agencies not doing their job. And they're going to each point at each other and say, well, I wasn't the only one that was responsible for these 20 people being killed. So I shouldn't be held responsible because they didn't do their job either. I guess that's uh, justice in America. Next, we turn to peace. For a peace bucket, world leaders will gather in Egypt from November 6th to 18th for COP27, seeking to move humanity away from climate chaos. For this week's peace bucket, Mark talks with Matt Oyle of Extinction Rebellion of the Capital District about the event. So between November 6th to November 18th, uh, many of the world governments will be meeting in Egypt uh, for COP27, the big International Climate Gathering, follow up to uh, the Paris Climate Accords of uh, six, seven years ago. Last year's meeting in um, Glasgow and Scotland didn't really come up with a whole lot. So we're joined with uh, Matt Oyle, who's one of the organizers with uh, Extinction Rebellion here in the Capital District. So, so Matt, what, what are some of your hopes or feelings come, leading up to uh, COP27? Uh, well, thank you for having me on, Mark. Um, to be completely blunt, I just hope that something is done. <laughs> you know, uh, any meaningful action, I will take it. Um, I know that is such a low bar, but that is more than I feel like I can say for what has been come out of any other COP conferences. I mean, you know, like you mentioned, we had the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, which even if that were you know, being enacted at every clause would probably not be anywhere near the amount that we need to, to, to get where we need to be, but they're not even doing that. So, and of course, COP26 last year was just a complete joke. So yeah, like, you know, 
it we're we're in such a dire state like we 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 yeah we we can't sit on our hands anymore we we have to ser- seriously start taking bold action now now in the last week or so there have been three reports put out by united nations and their you know affiliated groups like the um intergovernmental panel on climate change you know saying that the, the world um is not taking action in terms of climate cuts that would be sufficient to keep us below the 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius global warming that we uh, put at a, at a topping point. How, you know, what, what is Extinction Rebellion's idea about how do you get our government and political leaders to take, you know, climate action seriously? Well, I mean, kind of uh, the foundation of uh, why Extinction Rebellion was founded in the first place was that, like, you know, traditional means of pushing our government, like petition signing, you know, vote voting for uh, good candidates, um, you know, and, you know, green rallies and stuff like that, like, just really just haven't gotten it done. So, like, we need to we need to act in a way that's going to get the government to pay attention and force them to listen. And, you know, in our case, that would be through civil disobedience or nonviolent direct action, which, um, of course, Extinction Rebellion uh, exploded with, not literally, in uh, 2019. Um, And then even though we had a little lull through the pandemic, I think we're at a point where we're starting to come back. And uh, boy, do we uh, do we need it. And so you know, yeah, I think we, yeah, we just got to get people to, uh, you know, be willing to, uh, to whoever, you know, is willing and am of a privileged position to take those risks. Um, and, uh, yeah, really, uh, send a message to the government in a way that they can't ignore us. Now, one of the big issues in last year's cop, this year's cop, something was not dealt with in last year's cop. Is, is the whole idea of loss and damage that, you know, the industrial polluters like the United Nations have not followed through on their commitment to help provide some finance coming out of the Paris Accords to help, uh, you know, more developing countries in the global south deal with, with, with climate change. But in fact, they, in fact, should be not just making loans, incurring more debt for third world, but actually beginning to pay damages for the, you know, the type of losses that these countries are beginning to experience from extreme weather that's driven from the burning of fossil fuels by the industrial nations. Where, where does Extinction Rebellion stand on the issue that the you know, industrial north should be paying loss and damages to the global south? Um, we, uh, we completely agree with that stance. Um, you know, the people in the global south have... Uh, have contributed the very least to the climate crisis, but yet is dealing with the very worst effects of it. And um, yeah, I completely agree. And I would actually take it even a step farther that those global reparations shouldn't just go to the global South, but should go to marginalized communities within here in the industrialized global North that are experiencing very similar effects through environmental racism and stuff like that, like we've seen in uh, Arbor Hill right here in uh, in Albany. And um, and I think on top of that, we also need to be, you know, in the in the theme of like, you know, build, you know, building a system beyond the colonialist capitalist system that has gotten us to this point 
We also need to be paying reparations to communities that have been exploited through this very same colonialism for, for centuries now. Now, you know, Extinction Rebellion, as you mentioned, uh, you know, has done a lot of civil disobedience here in the capital district, New York City, but particularly uh, in the United uh, Kingdom. Um, you know, is Extinction Rebellion actually planning any, you know, formal, you know, representation at the, uh, you know, Egyptian um, COP27 meetings? Um, I unfortunately don't know that off the top of my head right now in terms of any specifics, but I would be very shocked if uh, if there wasn't any uh, XR presence out there. Um, and I think regardless, there will definitely be uh, there will definitely be uh, action taken by chapters in various cities all around the world. Um, like I think um, like the, I think Scientist Rebellion is planning an action in New York City uh on the um on november 5th or something like that um but uh yeah nothing and i don't know of anything locally planned yet but uh yeah i would say just keep your eyes peeled um you know so so extinction rebellion um you know what do they think about the present state of affairs in the united states um, you know, leading into the upcoming 27. Has the Biden administration been moving quick enough? Not anywhere close, I would say. Um, I mean, I know that the Inflation Reduction Act, I think that's the name of the bill, was uh, was passed earlier this year. Um, and, you know, it's the it, you know, it's the I think like the most like most progressive climate legislation that's been passed through Congress ever, which on one hand is good but like the bill doesn't go anywhere near the extent that we need to go in order to uh in in order to really get results and so you know i think you know it's great that you know that they got that start but plain and simple they need to keep pushing and i guess i'm just frustrated that so many people view the uh inflation reduction act as like a completed building when it really is just the pouring of the cement. And um, yeah, and I think, you know, within XR, it's been kind of that sentiment of trying to find that balance of like celebrate that we've gotten this far, but also recognize that we need to go a lot, lot farther. Now, in the last 90 seconds, so this COP is being held in Egypt. Many groups, Naomi Klein and others have pointed out that, you know, Egypt is a pretty authoritarian country does not respect human rights and and also and cops has always been a problem of underrepresentation of the real victims you know of of, of climate change um how would you know extinction rebellion address that human rights issue or the role of coca-cola and other fossil plastic manufacturer waste manufacturers moving into cop 27 in the last minute um, well, I would say in terms of representing the victims, our the third of our four demands is a citizens is in, installing citizens assemblies around the world, uh, which would essentially allow for civilian uh, c- c- civilian representation in our government and give them a direct role in various decisions that we normally just leave the Congress. And uh, I know that's not like very specific to COP, but I think that's kind of the route we need to be going in uh, in this sense. Uh, so we've been ta- talking with Matt Oyle, um, one of the members of the Central Rebellion Capital District. Matt, if people are interested in finding out more about 
Extinction Rebellion, good way to connect? Uh, yes, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the tag of XRCR Life. And our website is xrcr.life. I, I think that's the correct website. So, uh, yeah, check us out there. Thank you very much, Matt. Matt Oil, Extinction Rebellion. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So last year's COP in uh, Glasgow was called the last chance COP, the last chance to save the planet, life on the planet. It was the follow-up to Paris. And because nothing was done in Glasgow, they've now decided to hold the meeting on an annual basis. But at least in America, no one seems to be paying attention to this uh, world gathering. But the media sanctuary will continue to provide up-to-date information as to what's going on uh, in Egypt at COP27. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Mark Dunley. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. WOOC SLP 98.9 FM Schenectady and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, the stranger on the street. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we have a story on our showing on Thursday, November 3rd. There will be a screening of The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks at the Sanctuary, a part of the I Ear Presents series at RPI, and Elizabeth Press interviewed the director, Yoruba Richin. Next, we are joined by Yoruba Richin, who directed the new documentary, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks with Joanna Hamilton. Yoruba will present her film at the Sanctuary for Independent Media on Thursday, November 3rd at 7 p.m. Yoruba, thank you for joining us on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine and congratulations on your film. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks has just started streaming on Peacock. And I had the opportunity to see it. And I personally love the way that you creatively righted the public sort of her story as you do in your filmmaking uh, in this film about Rosa Parks. And I was just wondering if you could start off and tell us just a little bit about the film and uh, uh, about your approach to making this documentary about Rosa Parks. Absolutely. Um, well, the film came to me uh, because my co-director, Joanna Hamilton, had connected with the writer of the book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, which the film is based on. And she read the book and she also saw uh, the author, Jean Theo Harris's tweets on Mrs. Park's birthday uh, a few years ago, and she was tweeting all these things about all these facts about Rosa Parks that were really, you know, most people didn't know. And Joanna saw that and was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know, you know, this information. And um, and then she read the book and it turned out that 
there hadn't been a full length documentary about Rosa Parks, which is pretty shocking. And so she contacted me and asked if I, you know, told me to read the book. Um, and I read it and I was also amazed about all of the information that I didn't know about, you know, about this woman whose name, you know, so many of us, you know, know. And she asked if I wanted to work with her on uh, making this film. And uh, I immediately said yes, because I love stories that have not been told or that we think we know. And we have new information and new stories to, you know, to tell in the film. Uh, and then we brought the film to Soledad O'Brien Productions. And then, you know, subsequently Peacock uh, bought, you know, bought the film. And in terms of the approach of making the film, first of all, uh, we knew that that there was a lot of archive to be found uh, that hadn't necessarily been found before, that hadn't been or at least widely seen. And so that was the first thing that we did is uh, bring on an archival producer to help us uh, find you know, archive footage of, of Mrs. Parks. And then we also had, um, and we were so lucky to, to have this, the uh, Library of Congress had recently bought all of uh, Mrs. Parks' writings and, and letters. And so we had, which hadn't really had not been widely seen. So we knew we wanted to incorporate that somehow. And then as we were making the film, we all, we, you know, we kind of knew this, but sometimes when you're making a film, like you realize something really obvious, like in the process of making it, we decided that we wanted Mrs. Parks' voice to guide us through the film. And that meant that not only would we voice the letters and writings that she had, and we worked with the actress Lisa Gay Hamilton to be Mrs. Parks' voice, uh, audio tapes of Rosa Parks and video, the archive that I mentioned before, but it also helped us figure out what we could include and what we couldn't include. Uh, and that is because uh, Mrs. Parks, she was mostly asked about the boycott. You know, she wasn't asked about the other, the other events of her life. Um, and so we had to work hard to find her talking about it. That was one thing. But then if she didn't talk about it, even if she was involved in it, you know, we had to make some choices about, you know, whether to include it or not, because we really wanted her to be the, you know, the narrator of her story as much as possible. Very cool. So you not only use the voice of Mrs. Rosa Parks, but you also weave together interviews with activists, academics, her family. And you alluded to this idea that you learned a lot. I, I learned so much about Mrs. Rosa Parks while watching this, but I was wondering from you, what what sort of most surprised you in digging into her life? There's a lot of things. I guess one of the things that I didn't know is that, you know, after the boycott, the backlash that she received, uh, the backlash from not only the white community, but the black community, uh, even though they won the boycott, even though they won this integration on public transportation, that um, you know, people didn't want to be associated with her. She was kind of a black sheep after, and her life was threatened, and she had to leave Montgomery and go to family in Detroit. I mean, I knew she lived her life in the, the remainder of her life in Detroit, uh, but I didn't know why she went there. So that was a huge 
you know, a huge thing for me, because you always think of these, um, you know, freedom fighters, activists, you know, making this stand and then everything being okay, you know, them being known and, and famous, but not what the risks are to these people and what the risks are to the work that they do. That was a big one for me. It was also another thing that was interesting too, is just under coming to understand how this fight for uh, integration and for really dignity on public transportation had been a really longstanding thing. You know, people may know the name uh, Claudette Colvin, who you know refused to give up her seat. The young woman who refused to give up her seat a few months before Mrs. Parks did. But this battle around on public transportation had been longstanding. There are reports from like the early 1900s of Black people taking a stand, some getting shot, you know, having, uh, getting thrown off the bus. It was a real site, you know, of struggle for, for dignity and in the Black freedom struggle. And I didn't realize that either. Thanks for sharing that, Yoruba. So, you know, obviously it is important to tell these stories and to uh, insert and complicate our our history in a more well-rounded way than what we will, than what we or what I learned in school. But I'm wondering, Yoruba, why is it important to tell the story of Rosa Parks today? We started making the film. We knew it was relevant. We knew we were telling a story that hadn't been told. We knew we were... Um, it was an important story in this, you know, age uh, that we are in of uh, renewed activism, even though activism, activism has never has never stopped. A recognition of Black women being at the forefront of these movements. But as we continued to make the film, it just got more and more relevant. And sadly, it was because, you know, more and more of our rights were being threatened from voting rights. And that's what we chose. You know, one of the things we chose to focus on is her long history of not only, you know, registering the challenges uh, she had in registering herself to vote, registering the people of Montgomery to vote, her husband's work in registering to vote, and how those are being, you know, threatened and in some cases uh, really, you know, almost stripped away because of the the threats to to voting rights. So, and the other thing is that Rosa Parks never was satisfied about where we were as a country and where we were in terms of uh, our civil rights and the the Black freedom struggle. In the 1990s, she was still talking about, um, you know, how Thomas, Clarence Thomas was a a threat to what we had uh, already achieved in the Black, achieved in the Black community. She was Still talking about criminal justice and um, and all these all these issues, uh, reparations was something that was a longstanding fight that she was a part of as well. Only now are we even beginning to really talk about what reparations could be and should be. She really had the long view, uh, and all of the things that she stood for and was fighting for are are relevant to today. Great. And as we start to wrap up here, Yoruba, when you come to Troy on Thursday, November 3rd, you're not only screening your film, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks at 7 p.m. at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, but you are participating in what we call a Be the Media series discussing your social issue filmmaking. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself as a filmmaker and what you've focused on? Well, I do have to say, 
Elizabeth. We worked at Democracy Now! together. That was part of my training in terms of um, telling these stories that really deserve to be told, that were underreported or misreported. While I was at Democracy Now!, I was also working on my first documentary. And I had actually come from the documentary world, went into the kind of journalism world at ABC News and then Democracy Now!, and then knew that I always wanted to, you know, make long-form documentary films. And so social issue is generally what I do, uh, but I also love to tell stories of, you know, of joy and and entertainment, um, especially at this point in my career. I really like to be challenged artistically. How can I make it artistically interesting and different? And um, I'm very open to the, the subjects, but certainly the the spine of my work and of who I am is around social justice and social issues. Great. Well, Yoruba Richin, thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and we look forward to seeing you in Troy later this week. I look forward to being there. So clearly, you know, um, you know, Rosa Parks in our history classes is sort of treated as a, you know, sort of an accidental participant in this civil rights movement, when in fact, you know, she was a, a lifelong uh, organizer and activist. So it's, it's great to Bella's life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, um, Thursday, November 3rd. Uh, after the screening, uh, Dr. Vinalia Hardin will moderate a Q&A with the filmmaker we've just been hearing from, Yoruba uh, Richin. For more information, you can visit mediasanctuary.org. Next, Eileen Javier talks with Angela Kaufman about her pending eviction from Lakeview Mobile Home Park up in Saratoga. Hello, Angela. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. It has been a while since we spoke. What, what has been happening at Saratoga Lakeview Mobile Home Park since we last spoke? Your neighbor, the neighbor's roof. What happened to the neighbor? Were they able to fix it? Uh, can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so last time we spoke back in April, um, we had a, a severe windstorm and it took off uh, most of my next door neighbor's roof. And that put them in a really bad spot because, you know, they were being told by the landlord, hey, the park is closing. Don't bother fixing your roof. Um, but, you know, the housing market is crazy and nobody could afford to move anywhere. And also, how are you going to pay for a roof when you think you might be forced to move soon anyway? Um, so the community did a uh, crowdfunding campaign, um, a, an online fundraiser. And between that and some help from uh, this person's family and, and friends and things like that, um, they were able to get enough money together to um, to fix their roof. So with the help of the community, they were able to stay in their home. Oh, good news. And I remember also last time we spoke, you were served with an eviction notice. What happened about that? I mean, are you evicted? Are you there? What what happened? Yes, um, my landlord took us to court for eviction over the summer. And after a four hour trial, the case was thrown out by the judge. So this was a good thing uh, because we weren't evicted, um, but it also means our counterclaim and our actual testimony uh, wasn't even heard in that trial. And can you remind our listeners, what were the allegations that the landlord was using for you to evict you? 
So he said that we didn't get his permission before putting a roof on our home, but we haven't put a roof on our home since he was the landlord. Um, he said I, you know, he accused me of running around the park naked uh, in front of children. Um, he said that other tenants were leaving the park because of me. Uh, he actually brought letters to court written in language similar to his language, but with uh, a couple of my former neighbor's signatures on them. Um, so it came out in, in testimony from his own witness that basically neighbors were leaving the park because he was paying them to leave the park, regardless of his letters. Um, he said my carport was put up in the middle of a road and was blocking an emergency access gate, but he was referring to a dead end, which is my driveway, and the carport was put up years ago by previous owners. Wow. And with these allegations being so odd, I mean, was it easy to get them dismissed? Uh, surprisingly, no. Uh, we were prepared with tons of physical evidence to dispute what he was saying, and yet we had to listen to him go on and on for hours without providing any real evidence. Um, even something simple. He claimed my roof was a code violation, but produced no written citation because there isn't one. Code enforcement told my attorney and even told the Times Union there is no citation. So basically, my landlord rambled and talked in circles and dodged questions during cross-examination for as long as possible, but when it came to providing any actual proof of anything, he had none. And so it was, it was really a waste of all of our time. And preparing for court took months of work. We were very fortunate to have an attorney representing us, and it took months to find an attorney. Um, my attorney was semi-retired at the time, and this was his last trial, so he was amazing. Uh, but this whole thing was just a waste of time for everybody. And I believe that's intentional. Landlords have representation most of the time, and tenants don't. So a landlord can say, well, if I win, this person is evicted, and I get what I want. And if I lose, I've just disrupted this person's life and caused them a tremendous amount of stress. And maybe they'll self-evict soon rather than go through it all again. So it's like heads they win, tails we lose. Well, at least you won the eviction court case. So how do you feel about that? Um, yeah, it, it does feel good. And I was actually reflecting today, like this is this is one more year the park is open. And that might not have been the case otherwise. So it keeps us from being homeless for a little longer. It, it keeps the place here for a little bit longer. We ultimately know the park is going to be closed. Um, the attorney general is now actively investigating my landlord. And a lot more has come out since then. Uh, but for safety reasons, I can't go into detail about that yet. However, even with the AG's office involved, um, I believe that some of my neighbors who don't have access to an attorney are being uh, pressured to leave next year. So it's very possible that by this time next summer or by this time next fall, uh, we'll be back in court again. Maybe not. I mean, what do you think he will be using now against you? What grounds can he use? He, I think he explored everything based on what you just said. Right. You know, the, the thing is, from my experience with going to court, it, it seems like the landlord doesn't truly need grounds. Um, you know, he was making things up and lying on the stand and has had no consequences. So it really could be anything. Um, we were surprised when my landlord presented letters allegedly signed by the park's former owner, Brett Van Zant, 
uh, stating that Brett had several conversations with me and told me to take down the carport. That's a lie. In fact, Brett urged us to make improvements and while in the carport to make it more like a garage. So it's like you never know what he's going to pull out of out of his hat. Um, and the difference is it looks like at this point we are probably not going to have an attorney next time. So I keep looking. But, you know, the reality is like, yes, we won. But I had an awesome attorney and it still took four hours. So you never know what he's going to make up and having to. Um, you know, defend it on my own is going to be a different story. Uh, and that's why tenants need a guaranteed right to counsel. Have the landlord tried to evict other tenants or has evicted other tenants successfully that you know of? So as far as I know, um, I have had former tenants tell me that they felt pushed out um, that they left because they didn't want to deal with the stress anymore. And so technically they were not taken to court and evicted. Um, and they were given some compensation, but it was not all of what they were entitled to. And as far as I know, I do know of one person who was illegally evicted, meaning on a Friday, this person told me that the landlord was banging on the door saying, you have to be out of here. You're evicted with no due process. And by, you know, early the following week, the house was boarded up and that person was gone. And that, you know, I made this person aware of their rights. The AG's office reached out to this person. And so the AG's office is aware of it. But, you know, tenants sometimes don't realize just because a landlord knocks on your door and says, hey, I want you out of here. Um, you have rights, even squatters rights. Um, so an eviction means that a landlord takes you to court, gets an order of eviction from a judge. Landlords cannot just change the locks. They cannot board a place up. They can't just say, hey, you're out of here. Um, so that was out of line. But I'm not quite sure where things stand um, with others. I, I have suspicions about some things, but there's a lot that I can't say openly just now. Okay. And you mentioned earlier, right to counsel. For the listeners, can you tell us what that is? Sure. So there's currently a statewide right to counsel movement that involves coalitions of organizations statewide who are urging local and state governments to pass this right to counsel for tenants. Um, and basically, you know, if somebody commits a crime, they have a right to be represented by an attorney. But if you're taken to court for eviction, you don't have that same right. So nationwide in cities that that have this um, law, evictions decrease dramatically. In fact, landlords don't even bring a lot of eviction cases because they know they won't get away with the kind of nonsense allegations similar to my landlord trying to get away with. Um, they know when a tenant has access to an attorney, um, you know, it's just don't waste the judge's time. Um, so there's a decrease not only in the number of people evicted, but in the number of evictions that are brought to court. Okay. And how can people get involved in the right to counsel or get information about it if they are interested in that? Sure. So on Monday, November 21st, uh, from noon until about 3.30, there's going to be a town hall meeting and rally in downtown Albany. Um, we're going to start at noon at the Westminster Presbyterian Church. Um, if you're able to come out for that, that'd be wonderful. There's going to be organizations from around the state, uh, speakers, tenants, uh, different leaders. 
Um, you can also check out the Right to Counsel website, um, and it's righttocouncilnyc.org, uh, but there is a link to the statewide. Um, so a lot of this in initiative started in the city because they were they fought and they passed uh, Right to Counsel in New York City, and so that movement is spreading now. Okay, that is great information for our listeners. Well, Angela, there is anything else that I missed that I didn't ask you in this follow-up? about Saratoga Lakeview Mobile Home Park? I think that probably covers everything. And I really appreciate you touching base with us and, and you know, uplifting the stories of what's going on here. Thank you for speaking with the Hawks on Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. So there are millions of people living in uh, mobile home parks all across the country um, because of affordable housing. Um, in many places, not particularly this case, investors are buying them up and, you know, kicking the tenants out. And in many cases, the mobile homes are so old that the owners, in fact, cannot afford to um, to, to move them. So uh, I know Aline Javier will be following up with the story on Angela Kaufman and the Lakeview Mobile Home Park. Next, we have a recap of an experience that took place last weekend at Hudson River. We're going to begin our long journey. Thank you all for coming. Thus begins Jack Magai's Artisan Residence for the Focus Lab, um, the New Island Project. So we're going to take like a five, ten minute walk to the site, the secret site, which will be revealed shortly. Um, and then Jack will give us uh, further instructions when we get there. I'm in the, as in the dark as you all are, so we'll see what happens. All I know is that we are going to have some roles to play. Everyone's going to be taking part of this. Um, it's a participatory performance. So to the river, let's go. <laughs> Onwards. That's the voice of Rafe Larson, director of Focus Lab. And he's taking us on a journey down to the river under the Hoosick Street Bridge where Focus Lab artist-in-residence Jack Magai is waiting for the group to join him in his performance piece. So we're arriving to the, the secret site. We're here. We made it. <laughs> when we arrive, we are given these badges that have colors and letters on them. Hi, honey. Hello. Oh, I'm in E2. Oh. But I'm ready. Yeah, You're blue. Blue. Yeah. I got a C. I got a C. I got an I. An E. You got an I. Okay. All right. I got a blue E. We've always, ima we've always imagined having uh, the arts be an integral part of the Focus Lab mission. So not just, you know, each exhibit that we have, we don't want just scientific or exhibitional interpretation. We wanted our artists to mull over these questions. So for the Hudson Riverfront exhibit uh, to flow both ways, Jack seemed like the obvious inaugural artist in residence because he does these sort of immersive experiential walks uh, in sort of forgotten places or fringe places along the, the kind of urban hinterlands. Um, so for this particular performance, we imagined a sort of participatory experience uh, where people would actually become part of the show. And again, we're in this like liminal, we're beneath an overpass next to the shoreline in a space that's designated for cars or for people, we're not quite sure. So we're, on a, we're in the threshold, I think, which is a perfect, perfect place for Jack's work. Uh, this, I'm calling this event New Island Project. And you'll find out later sort of why at the end. 
what I'm doing today is very much about the present. So I'm asking you to be, to just sort of notice what's going on in a deep way. And there are two parts to what, to this event. One is uh, passive, just using your senses, taking in what's around you here. And the second part, I'm hoping that in the second part, the experiences of the first part will be used as you follow a ridiculous script that I've written that suggests that you do things, not, nothing, nothing uh, un unsafe, but just kind of kooky things. And um, we're gonna be uh, embodying sort of historical characters in a general kind of way and interacting with one another in teams. The teams are color-coded, that's why you have colors. The roles are letter-coded, that's why you have letters, and that will all be clear later. What I'm gonna ask you all to do first is to line up at the edge of the blacktop over here, facing the river. Jack asks us to line up with our toes at the edge of the asphalt, looking out under the bridge, which is over the Hudson River. We're supposed to choose a point, close our eyes, listen to the sounds, notice what's around us, the sounds of the traffic, of people walking by, music blaring. I feel the sun on my face, especially as I move in the snack stop where he asks us to all as a group while not looking at each other and communicating to step back together as a group. That's it. That's the first part in your eyes. And I hope you'll use that experience as we go into the second part. Have a look at your badge again. And you'll see on the tables in front of you, there, there are color-coded ends of these two tables. So in a second, go to the table with your color, the end with their color on it, and find a piece of paper with your letter on it and start following those directions. If you have any questions, come and find me and uh, have fun. According to our roles, we all got into costume. Yes. Wow. That is Debonair, yeah, I got the hat. Yes. With the gold earring. <laughs> Miners wore hazard oh, suits and hard hats. Explorers wore hats and beards. <laughs> Industrialists had bowler hats. I also saw some sequences and mustaches like Monopoly Man. Critics were aloof, had writing pads, and circled the group. We've got our explorers, we've got our miner. She's our critic. We need to take Ellie and Cena and look off into the distance and smooth your clothes. Yes, like you're a very important person. So smooth your clothes. Maybe your mustache, maybe your facial hair. Open the case and remove the flags. Hand these to the explorers. You may begin exploringly. And we explore anywhere in this expanse along the river until we come across a small area that we think is worthy of further study. This can be as small as a dog or as large as a whale. It is okay if it overlaps with another group's area. Mark its perimeter with flags. Now find your team's miners. 
and show them the area. Okay, so we have to go explore, and then we will show you, our miner. Right. While you do that, the miner is asked looking. to yeah. collect three types of items. Yeah, things made by people, made by other living organisms, things not made by living organisms. So we definitely have items made by people. I love that can. Can I have that can? Yeah. It's like a yeah, beefaroni. Beef there we go. Yeah. Rock, definitely not made by yeah. other living orcs. Maybe a few more rocks. Why yeah. not? Yeah, let's get some. What do you think of the bounty we have found? I approve. Yeah. A little beefaroni, a lighter. What a treasure. I think we can make something All right. from this landscape. It looks like we have joy to extract from this puzzle. It looks like livelihoods and joy will be ours. Ooh. You can hardly wait. You can hardly wait. Yeah. Very good miner, very good explorer. I thank you and thank you. So I think we have everything we need here. We have leaves and dirt, rocks and can, lighter and decaying plastic all the elements of a little civilization which shall we commodify hmm? which object team do you think we can make the most money off of i think this has been a very successful expedition agreed 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 yes <laughs> have we done what we needed to do today yeah, I no. think so. Yeah. Pretty sure, yeah. We have our pattern of range. joy extraction and maple sugar leaf peeping already. Oh, it's a ring. We had assembled our commodity, and once we'd done so and taken a step back, the critics, who had been aloof this entire time, they stepped in and took out some hammers and destroyed it. He's happy. <laughs> I grin. So where did the inspiration come from? Just hanging out by the river. Seeing all this, all the junk, all the stuff. And I wanted people to get immersed in it. I'm just trying to figure out a way to get people to get their hands dirty for lack of a better word just and I thought you know I needed to prompt people to do silly things to, uh, to pull that off this is Sina Bazilahiki for Hudson Mohawk magazine reporting from the new island project by Jack Magai well thank you Sina for that very informative uh, segment uh, if you want to figure out more about what is the focus lab you can check out www.focuslivinglab.com. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I am Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Engineer tonight, believe it or not, was our multifaceted Sina Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all our volunteers who made this episode possible uh, Elizabeth Press and uh, Eileen Javier. Um, and um, have a good evening.